Let's, let's pray together. Would you bow your head? Lord, we bow our heads today um, in a, with a sense of reverence and awe. It's right that we get together here on Sunday, Resurrection Day, in a solemn assembly. Um, you're the King of Heaven. And Lord, in your presence, we, you know, we want to come today, you know, bring in our, our words of love and affection and a real a deep acknowledgement. You know, we, we sang about you being the Ancient of Days. We sang about you being the King of Heaven. And so, Lord, today we're here, we're here to hear from you, to understand, you know, what it is that you're calling us to do and to be in your, you know, to be in your presence. There's a way that our lives get full by, you know, gazing at the beauty of your character. And so, Lord, I, you know, my prayer is that as the singing portion of our worship service is, you know, kind of, we're going to take a break into it. We're not going to stop worshiping. We're going to continue worshiping by admiring you and learning from all that you've told us in your word. So open up our minds and our hearts to receive it in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Hey, would you do me a favor before you grab a seat? Um, why don't you welcome some of the people that are right around you? Maybe there's a face you don't recognize, a little handshake and a smile. Fellowship's the name of our church. So. week on, on Thursday, um, I had a lunch appointment right kind of in one of our rooms right in the atrium, and I sat down and I was meeting with a woman who had, um, her and her husband over the course of their marriage so far, uh, have fostered 30 children up to this point. Not all at once, you know? And um, it's funny, I mean, we were maybe an hour into the lunch, and um <sighs> The whole conversation about fostering just kind of, you know, reminded me of my own, you know, my own life story. I spent six months in foster care and I was, you know, I was just, I was thinking back to um, what a difference it had made in my life. You know, if you know, uh, some of you know my story, I was born um, in a less than ideal circumstances, no dad around and a mom who was pretty hooked on drugs and a situation was pretty chaotic in the city of angels, Los Angeles. And um, I was sitting at that lunch and I was just, I was recalling that, you know, the, I wondered for a minute there while we were eating, my mind kind of drifted off. What would have happened in my life if, if I hadn't been picked up out of that situation, you know, put in foster care for a handful of months and then, and then perfectly placed in the family that I would be raised and grow up in, you know? It was just kind of a reminder to me of how, you know, how much like when you're, when you're little, there's so, there's so few things that you have control over. And, you know, the Lord just put his hands right on my life, picked me right up out of that situation, put me in a totally different situation. And I look back and I'm just like, what, man, what would have happened? 
Um, that wasn't the last time that the Lord put his hands on my life and, you know, picked me up and, and moved me around. And can anybody in here ever relate to the fact that God keeps putting his hands on your life and putting you in situations that you would either, that you love and are a blessing or that you don't love? But it, you know, it's pretty clear to all of us, no one has the driver's wheel on their life and is in complete and full control of that. And why, why is that? No. Today we're going to pick up our series in Genesis. We're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible is going to take the camera lens and zoom it in on the main character of Genesis chapter 2, which is Adam. What is he made for? How was he made? What did God teach him? What did God say to him? And since we are, we're descendants of his, we're made you know, down the line from him. It means that the things about him and the things that God told him, the world that he placed him in, all those things are completely and utterly relevant to us, even though they happened so long ago. I'm going to ask that you take out your copy of God's word, open up to Genesis chapter two. uh, And I'm going to ask that we stand to our feet in honor of the reading of God's word. As we look at what happens when God puts his hands on Adam, right? Uh, Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to start at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last, it's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, in these verses, there's so much truth. And it's truth that we need. It's truth, some of it that's hard for us. Truth is hard for us. But, you know, you've promised us in your word that you give us a helper, the Holy Spirit, in order to open up our eyes and our hearts to receive the truth from you, the tree of life. We need to eat from it today. So, Lord, I pray that, you know, would you protect my words, open up all of our minds and hearts, help us hear these words really as from you, Lord. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. We are going to have some fun today. How many of some of the most hotly contested ideas of our day are right here in these verses? Right? Um, I am going to tell you right off the top, I do not have enough time in the next 30 minutes to unfold all the things that we need to learn here. Um, it's one of the reasons why we plan the Unashamed Conference. Um, we, you know, we need a full day and a half to really talk about what does this mean? What does is, what is gender difference mean? And what are we supposed to do with it? And how does the New Testament interpret the gender difference? We've got, there's two ways to live. To live as if what God told us about the way that he made the world is the way that he made the world. And to make a decision that the good life is found by living under the instructions that he gave us. Or to consider ourselves God, free to remake his world however we see fit in a way that pleases us. There, there are two ways to live. And uh, I, I sure hope that, you, um, I hope that you're planning on attending the Unashamed Conference because in order to really do it this justice, it doesn't just need short, you know, uh, Twitter-worthy quotes. You know, we need to unfold this and say, God, what do you mean by this? And what's hard about this? And how can we learn from this? I, d- I don't have time to get into everything about this, and I, I, I do hope that you'll uh, sign up to join us. Um, but I do want to get into much of it because it's going to be a lot of fun here for these next few minutes. Um, chapter 2 starts off you know first let's just kind of work through this chapter 2 starts off God tells us that of all the seven days of a week and we still live in this we live in a seven day week of all the days of the seven day week there's one day one out of seven that God himself set apart 
He's separated it from the rest of them. It's, it's still one of seven. It's one day a week. But this one day, he sets it apart and he names it holy. And the word holy means separate. He pulled it aside. Six days, you work. And some of you are like, I only want to work three or four. <laughs> no, six days work. You know, six days. Do your stuff. Do your thing. You know, probably lots of you work five of those days for whatever whatever your job is and then you know a lot of you have a honeydew list that you hit up on Saturday and you work in six days and then on the seventh day you know you know the Sunday for Christians Sunday we take the the teachings about this Sabbath the holy day that's set apart and we make that resurrection Sunday kind of following the the example from what I can tell of the early Christians and this is the day that's set apart God made all the days, six of them he distributes to us, exercise wisdom and judgment and do what I've called you to do. But the seventh day is not like the rest of the days. It's not yours to do whatever you want to on it. The seventh day is my day. It's a holy day. I've made it special. And every, we're going to see everything that God separates and calls his and makes special, he gives back to us blessed. I mean, let me ask you a question. Um, you, you finish a Sunday after kind of get out and getting up in the morning, like you all do, you get up early, you start thinking about the worship service, you know, you start thinking about what it's going to be like to get together with all these other wonderful people and sing songs. And then, you know, you get out your checkbook and you write your tithe check. Okay, this is the portion of my income that's for the Lord that's set apart. I can't wait to give this in the offering. Like, Pastor Seth, we haven't passed an offering bucket for years, right? You tuck it in your Bible. You know, you're looking at the clock. You're like, I don't want to miss any of it. I want to be there 10 minutes early to make sure that I can budget in extra time. And then I, you know, I arrive and I'm like, well, I could go sit in the seat that I sit in all the time, but I don't want to do that because I want to meet new people. So you go sit in a different area entirely, right? And then the music starts up and something happens. You know, you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, look at me, I'm here with all God's people, and we're here to meet with the Lord. And this is set apart, and this is holy. You know, then, you know, open up God's word, and, you know, there's a, at least a couple things from the teaching that you can make a note and say, man, the Lord really taught me something today. And then you drive home with your family, and go visit friends and you spend an afternoon in, you know, enjoying God and thinking about him and learning and you bring your kids back to Kid Blast and the, you know, your high school students back to the youth group. I mean, by the time you get to the end of Sunday, you just lay in your bed Sunday at the end of the day and you just think to yourself, what a holy day that just was. You know, now let me ask you a question. Is, is that day, is that seventh day, is that for God being severe? This is my day and you leave it alone? Or is this God saying, look, it's so good for you. One day, for one day where you're not busy with other things, what you're busy with is me. Me and you and all the things that I've surrounded you with, you know? And then the Lord says, that's a blessed, blessed, that's a blessed day. Now, isn't that exactly how all of your Sundays are? You know? But you can see it, right? The Lord, the Lord sets it apart, says, this is mine. See that this is mine? I've got a, this is a special one. This is mine, and it's mine for me and you. Now, the New Testament tells us that Jesus himself said, this, the, the, um, man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. 
And we have to ask ourselves, why, why did God create the world the way that he did? Why did he take six days every day continuing to work and then on the seventh day set it apart and say, there, now it's done? Why did God do that? And scripture tells us the reason he did it is for us. We all understand that because God is so wonderful and amazingly powerful that nothing can stop him. He could do whatever he wanted to. He could have snapped his finger and in one instant, everything that he did over seven days could have been done in one millisecond. We, we understand that, right? You know, we don't believe that God is limited in his power. Therefore, it took multiple millions and millions of years for our somewhat powerful God to eventually, with enough time, get the world to where he wanted it to be. We, one of the things that we say is like, not, oh my gosh, how could the Lord have done this in six days and made everything? We say, what took him so long? Why did he take six days to do it? And why did he do it that way? And the reason he did it that way is a pattern. It's a model for us. He, he did it that way, and then he told us about the fact that he did it that way because there's something in the way that he did it that he said, this is for you. You're made in my image. I'm showing you this is the way I do things. This is the way I want you to do things. Because did you ever notice this, as God was creating, he would get to the end of a day, And he would look around at everything that he had done that day. And at the end of the day, he would proclaim his judgment over it. This is what I think about everything that I've just done. What's the word that God most often uses at the end of a day of creation? He looks at everything and says, this is, this is good. He's happy with it at the end of a day. So when light time, when the daytime is over and the, and the sun sets, the daytime is over and daytime is the time for working, when he's done with his work at the end of the day, he goes, this is good. And then you ever notice that, so then there's nighttime and then the next morning, what does he do? The next morning, every day, the night before, when we all went to bed, you know, he said, that's good. The next morning when, when the sun rises again, he puts his hands on the world that was good yesterday. And what does he do? He reorganizes it. He grabs a hold of it. He makes changes to it. And we, I mean, we should ask the question when we're reading this, wait a second, if it was good, you know, have you ever heard that uh, phrase? Um, uh, it, no, I can't even remember the phrase. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. There it is. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if, if it was good the night before, why is God messing with it the next day? And that's a good question for us to ask. If it was good the night before, why the next day is he messing with it again? It tells us what he's doing with the entire project, which is, is bringing out his glory inherent in his creation. What he did yesterday was good. Got to the end of the day, he's brought some of his glory out of it. The next morning, he puts his hands on it again because yesterday's glory is not good enough for today. Today, there is more glory to be brought out of it, and he's going to put his hands on the world, and he's going to bring more glory out of it. And at the end of that day, he's going to get to the end of that day, and what's he going to proclaim over it again, even though now it's different than it was the day before? What does he say over it? He said, it's what? It's good. And yet he keeps putting his hands on it. 
And see, this is something that's important for us to see in Genesis. It's why Genesis 2 follows. And the camera zooms in on Adam. And Adam understands how it is that God made the world. He's been told how God made the world. Because now Adam is not just going to be a participant watching God do it. Adam is going to get the job. He's made in God's image, put in God's world. And God is going to give him a job to do. And he's going to put it right in his hands. And he tells him, it's your job to tend this and to guard it. It's your job to take all of your skills in, in the world that God created and to bring more glory out. There is more heavenizing to do in the world, and Adam is going to continue the project. God got the project started and said, all right, Adam, and now it's yours. And it's starting in verse 5, the picture that we get is, you know, kind of, it's, it's a bit strange because it's not like this anymore. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, because the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist, I, I think the ESV, I, that's what I have, I think the ESV misses it here. In my notes it says this also is a, a you could also use the word spring was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. There's no, there's no rain yet. We talked last week about there being the waters above the earth, like a water canopy that was over the earth. So the plants did not get watered the way that they do now with rain. There was a spring that came up from under the ground and watered them all. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So now, man is created from the dust of the ground. Man gets his name Adam. That word Adam means from dust. Now, Adam is made from the ground. And when God makes him, he makes him from the ground. Apparently, he makes him from the ground in a land called Eden. But then in one section of Eden, God is going to, like he takes part one day of the week and says, this is special. I'm going to put my hand on this. This is special. He also puts his hand on a certain section of a land of Eden. And this is in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So he forms man in the land of Eden from the dust. Then he puts his hands on him and transports him and places him in a garden that he has planted in the east part of Eden. So if we had a map, we'd have a, we'd have a, a land named Eden, and one special section of that land of Eden is a garden. The entire land of Eden was not the garden. There was one specific area that was a garden, and God planted that garden. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. In verse 9, I want you just to imagine this now. So now Adam has been taken by God and placed in a garden, a special section of the land of Eden. And while he's standing there, verse 9, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Just imagine what that looked like for Adam. Adam is watching full-grown trees with fruit on them spring up out of the ground instantaneously at God's command. One of these trees that came up was the tree of life. It was in the midst of the garden. And another was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And now in verse 10, we start to get a map of what this early world was like. So now Adam is in the garden. He sees God spring up these trees. There's two special trees in that garden. And then we're going to get a viewpoint of all the lands that are around Eden in verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and of course, it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Remember the last time you were in Havilah, looking for gold? (laughs) The gold of that land is good, but Delium and Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. What, What Genesis is telling us is that This land was high ground. In Ezekiel, we find out that the Garden of Eden was in a mountainous area. It was a mountain garden. So the rivers in the garden would flow in four different directions. And those four directions went to four different countries. And those four countries were visible to Adam from this high mountain garden. Reminds us of the time that God used the devil to take Jesus to a very high mountain. And from that very high mountain, the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their power. He could see what they all were. He could see that there was differences between them. He could see what the special glory was in each one of those kingdoms. And then Satan offered him to him. Jesus said no to Satan's pathway of coming to own those nations, but he did not say no to owning those nations, those kingdoms, but there was going to come another way. It's going to come another way. So Adam from this high mountain garden where he would spend time with God, God not only sprung up this garden all around him, but from there he could see these other lands. Why would God show him these other lands? Why would he see what they were? Why would God tell him what the names of it were? Why was it important for him to know which one was filled with gold, which one was filled with onyx? Why was that important? Now, sometimes I think we might skip over this, but if we can sort of map out the storyline, what would have happened if Adam would not have sinned? Adam and Eve would have had children, Their firstborn, Cain. What would Cain have done? Cain would have found himself a wife. And maybe maybe Cain and his wife, you know, what does scripture say? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they will become one flesh. So the husband and the wife don't live at home, they leave. Cain would have found a wife and would have left Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve would have continued to live in the land of Eden and Cain and his wife would have maybe moved down to Havilah, planted a new garden sanctuary there, taking some of the seeds from the garden in Eden, taking it down to Havilah, And then another one of Adam's sons might have gone down to Cush and planted a garden sanctuary there. I mean, you can see where this storyline could go. Sons and daughters moving out, expanding over the whole world, planting garden sanctuaries where they could be with God, listen to God, eat from the tree of life. The produce from the land of Eden could go down to Havilah. The gold from the land of Havilah can get exchanged back to Eden. I mean, what we can see right here is there's a whole, I mean, 
We can anticipate what would happen over generation after generation after generation of people walking with God, obeying God, loving him, following his commandments, and bringing out the glory and the beauty that's inherent in all of the world. Now, we all know what's going to happen, that that's not going to happen. But can you imagine everything that was lost? That whole vision that is right there for Adam and Eve to pursue. But now it's not quite there to pursue because there's a problem. If Adam is going to have a son named Cain and Cain is going to go to Havilah, he's going to need a little help with that project, right? He can't do that one by himself. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He makes Adam responsible. That word work means to serve, to tend. An old word for that is husband, husbandry. He's going to work it, he's going to tend it, he's going to serve it, and he's going to keep it. That word keep means to guard, to protect. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We're going to talk a lot more about that tree next week. Genesis chapter three brings us to really focus in on that tree. But that's not the focal point of this chapter. The focal point of this chapter is that there's not quite enough glory out of Adam yet. Because in verse 18, the Lord God looked at Adam and said, it is not good. God looks at Adam, hmm, not good enough. There's more glory here. So I will make a helper fit for him. Now, what you might think is, okay, so if the Lord's going to, right there, he says, I will make a helper fit for him, then wouldn't you think that verse 19 would say, okay, so God put Adam to a deep sleep, let's get right to it. But God doesn't do that. First, he tells him it's not, first, God in his own thinking and own understanding says, this is not good. But Adam doesn't know it's not good yet. So God, to his young son, Adam, is going to lead him through a little teaching lesson. All right, Adam, I need you. I know you're not good like this. But you don't know that you're not good like this yet. So I'm going to, we need to have a little teaching lesson so you can see that. Verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, we know from the Bible that uh, oftentimes when children got names, they didn't get named until after a little while of the father observing the child, watching and looking, okay, what, what's the nature of this child? This is why biblical names, when a child gets named, that name always has meaning. In the Bible, they're not just looking like at the top 20 most popular names. You know, no one gets named Sarah just because Sarah's a popular name. Somebody gets named Sarah in the Bible because Sarah's name has meaning. When Adam is naming these animals, he's responsible for them. He's the one who's going to tend them. He didn't make them, but he's going to tend them. It's his responsibility to take care of them, to serve them, to exercise dominion in a way that the animal kingdom benefits from. And one of the things that he has got to do is he's got to learn about them. 
So God is maturing Adam by putting him in these situations to challenge him to do things that he was not doing before. God brings an animal to Adam and Adam has to look at it to try to understand its nature. What is this, you know, what is this animal's nature? And we all understand this. We've all seen that movie, The Horse Whisperer. And we've all seen some people who with animals have, there's a way of, oh, I can understand, I can communicate here. There's a way of looking at an animal and understanding its nature. Because in order to exercise dominion and rule in God's world, it's not just an iron fist of power. God's rule does not work like that. God's, God, when God gives responsibility of authority, that authority always comes from a loving and expressive way. Okay, if I'm going to be responsible to lead this, if I'm going to lead a horse, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to understand what it's telling me. It's, it's, try, it's communicating things to me. I'm going to learn about it. How many times in the Bible, over and over again, do we get told as people to look at animals as examples of something, to learn something about ourselves and about God from those things? So Adam's, Adam's naming these animals and looking at them and he's learning all these things. And one of the things that he's learning between the animals is that they all have helpers. They have a mate. And we know that he was doing this for a little while because when his mate finally shows up, when God brings Eve to him, he says, at last. See, he's come to see that they've all got something that he doesn't have. So verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And I mean, we'll definitely talk about this more at the Unashamed Conference, but there's no way for us to wiggle out of this. Adam was created first. The New Testament reinforces this teaching. Adam is made first, and Adam's given a responsibility. Adam's given instructions of what to do and what not to do. And Adam can't do it. Adam is the kind of being that needs help, and not just generalized help. Not a Roomba. (laughs) He needs a helper that's fit for him. One who is able to do things that he is unable to do. And those abilities are exactly, those strengths and abilities are exactly in the places where his weakness and help is most needed. He needs a helper. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. God set aside one, God God took for himself one day out of the week. Okay, there's seven days, this one special. Out of the land of Eden, God took one part of it and said, this is a garden. I'm going to make this beautiful, wonderful. This is special. There's going to be glory in this. And God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. If, if, if we trace this word about 25 other places in the Bible, this kind of deep sleep is almost death sleep. 
it is way down. And it would make sense because if God's going to take a rib and have him not wake up screaming, he's going to have to get put down pretty far. Yes? Our ribs come in sets. You know, one on the right, one on the left, but they're sets. Twelve of them. We don't know if God took one full set of a, you know, a right and a left, but he took the rib and the flesh that was around it. And he closed up that place with flesh. And what did he do with it? And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And the New Testament tells us about this. Because on one hand, it can be, you know, the men in the room are like, yes, Genesis chapter two, women are, you know, our, our wives are our helpers, strong helpers. Yes, that's right. Men are the head and the women are the strong helpers, right? But then Corinthians tells us that man is the glory of God. And because women, was, women were made from real living material from the first man, that a woman is the glory of man. And if man is the glory of God and a woman is the glory of man, then she's the glory of the glory. There's more glory in her. And everybody knows that. Every man understands that a woman is the glory of the glory. Every, we all do. Every man watches women, and particularly his wife, do things, and he steps back and he says, that, I have no, <laughs> that's glorious. Every woman who's ever grown a human life in her own womb, without thinking about it, while she was doing seven other tasks, How? How can she do that? How can she bring forth another life without hardly trying? She's the glory of the glory. And she's God's strong helper. It's no wonder the New Testament tells husbands she's a weaker vessel. And you better take care of that. Not, not, the, not the weaker vessel as in the inferior one. The difference between a Ming Dynasty vase and a $5 Home Depot five-gallon bucket. Those both carry water. One of them's weaker but which one has glory? And then the man said, <laughs> you think of all the things he could have said. It's about time I get some help around here. He could have said that. <laughs> he could have said, where's my dinner? Doesn't say that. We've known some men to do that, right? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman. That word woman, he he names her Isha. 
because she was taken out of man. He learned how to name her from the way that God named him. God named him Adam. Adam is Adama. Dama is earth. So God names him. Your name is from where you came. You came from the dust. Your name is Adam. But she didn't come from the dust. She came from you. She was taken out of man. Therefore, (laughs) what man in his right mind would stick around with dad and mom when he's got her? Hmm? And they shall become they shall become one flesh. I mean, what do we learn from this? You know? I mean, one of the things that we learn from this is that, I mean, God, it's, isn't it so wonderful the way that he made things and the way that he made us? We get the special privilege of every day waking up in the morning and realizing today, no matter how many hours of the day I get today, today is a day where I get the privilege of bringing out more of God's glory from the things that I put my hand to. This is why the Westminster Confession says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And those two things are not separate. They're two sides of the same coin. Every day we get to look around at what's around us and say, God, you have made me with special abilities to bring out more glory. And because that's what you made me for, I love it. I love getting to the end of the day and saying, I, God, you use my life to bring out more glory. Another thing that we learn is God keeps putting his hands on Adam. You know, not only did God take the first six days and take the world into his hands and break it apart, and after he broke it apart, reorganized it and filled it with more glory, you got to the end of the day and you're like, wow, day four is more glorious than day three. Let me ask you a question. Was the human race more glorious or less after God put his hands on Adam, put him into a death sleep, took out a part of his body and formed a woman, woke him up and said, Adam, here you go. Wasn't that day infinitely more glorious than the day before? And I mean, in our day and age, I mean, how... What would happen if a whole, you know, a whole congregation, maybe a whole movement would happen where we would wake up and say, man, what, how could any of us possibly improve on this right here? Men, we have been given the responsibility to tend and to guard, to protect and to keep. One of the things that God does to strengthen us for the task is he keeps, he keeps pushing us into situations that reveal our immaturity and invite us to grow into more and more maturity. And one of the things that causes us men to grow in maturity, I mean, if you think about each situation that God put Adam in, all right, Adam, there's not enough glory here yet. You've got to, come on, you've got to grow up. There's the land of Havilah is waiting for the kingdom of heaven, so let's go. And the very last thing, that, the last situation that God puts him in here in this chapter to cause him to mature and grow up more is the creation and gift of Eve. And every guy here who got married remembers. Remember how immature you were before her? Remember how smart you thought you were? How wise you thought you were? And then God gave you a gift 
of a woman who you do not possibly understand for the life of you. Amen? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And yet you're responsible. How many times have you finished off a day or a week and said, Lord, <laughs> how am I supposed to do this? You know? And I mean, I don't know, in, in my opinion, one of the things that concerns me in our day and age is that men are waiting longer and longer to get married, not in their, you know, not in their 18s and 19s and not even in their early 20s. Some of them wait until their 30s. And you know what that's doing? It's delaying your maturity. There's a point that you cannot grow up into maturity without the maturing factor of a woman. What's worse than a bunch of guys in their late 20s? without women around. What's worse than that? Oh, I gotta, I have to wrap up. I'm sorry. Before I get myself into trouble. Okay. Um, Last thing I want to say before we wrap up. When God put his hands on me and lifted me out of my birth home and into a foster home, first it got worse and then it, it was worse than before. And then after six months in that foster home, God put his hands on me and he lifted me out of that foster home and placed me in a family. Um, I, was, I was untamed, immature. Um, and I mean, that home is exactly the one that he had for me. And it's not the last time that God put his hands on me. Just when I'm comfortable and I'm settled in, like, yeah, all right, I think this is the good stuff right here. What happens? God says, nope, there's more glory in there. And he puts his hands on me and he reorganizes my life all over again. And sometimes it's a reorganization like, yeah, I like this. Other times it feels like a death sleep and he's ripping open my side. Anybody had a day like that, a week like that, a year like that, where God put his hands on you and said, I got more glory in here. This is going to hurt, but it's going to be good. Um, And one of the reasons we know this after Adam, God brought forth another son. We just celebrated him at Christmas. God's one and only son, his only begotten son. And his son grew up had a regular life and God kept putting his hands on Jesus provoking him and the Bible tells us that he was growing him up there was a maturity he was growing up in wisdom and in stature before the Lord and that was happening because God kept putting his hands on Jesus and pushing him to bring more glory out of there and on the cross the apostle John stood right there when Roman soldiers pierced his side And out of his side came the water and the blood. And through the water, through the washing of water of regeneration is what Titus says, and through the blood of Christ cleansing us for our sins, hasn't God taken from Jesus' side in order to create for Jesus something called the church which the Bible says is his bride, his strong helper, 
so every, you know, every time we get together and we celebrate communion, we says, you know, this is the body and this is, you know, this is my body, this is the blood. One of the things that we have to remember each time that we do that is the Bible tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, said, no, nah, it's not. I'm not going to do this alone. Not only am I going to be a king, I'm going, to have a, I'm going to have a great spouse with me, a great queen, my bride, the church. Okay, Jesus, but this is going to hurt. And what did he do? For the glory set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame of it. And now what are we? Bone of his bones and, and flesh of his flesh. He is our great king, our great head. He is Christ. We are his spouse, his bride, made from his side. as his strong helper. To do what? To bring more of his glory out of our own lives and of the world. And God knew exactly what this was going to do from the very opening chapters. What amazing God. Would you stand? Let's, if you have your communion elements, would you take them out? On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread into his hands. He lifted it up and he gave thanks for it. And then what did he do? He broke it apart and said, this is my body broken for you. His body broken for us is what shed the blood that accomplished the forgiveness of our sins and the, and the new birth, the new life in Christ. If that's the center of your life, that's what you are, then what we do is we remember what he has done to join us to himself. Take this and in remembrance of him, let's eat. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Life is in the blood. His blood poured out to cleanse us and to give us new life. We don't, we don't drink this cup. This is a symbol. There's no miracle. This is not miracle juice. But what it represents is holy. One of the reasons why the Apostle Paul said, don't do this in a lighthearted manner, disrespecting the Lord about this. If you have been washed clean by his blood... Then in a moment, we'll, we'll, we'll drink. But if you have not, just because the person next to you is doing it and you don't want to feel awkward, don't do it. This is symbolic. This is holy. What he did on the cross was holy. What it's done in our lives is holy. He's brought us life. And that life is in his blood. If that's your life, then take and drink. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, It's, it is astounding to us that you did it this way. In your word is instructions and truth, and that truth is life and light to us. We do not invent or make up a reason or purpose for the world or for, or for men. We don't invent or make up a purpose for women or for marriage. We receive it by truth, and that truth sets us free. Lord, please, set us free by more of your truth today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.